This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about law keepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspaper men, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Today we have something I've tried to put together for a few weeks now. I have found myself really interested in Josiah Gregg's The Commerce of the Prairies, but I found the book itself to be a little unapproachable for this particular format. So then I stumbled across the book Trails of the Pathfinders by George Bird Grinnell, and he dedicated two chapters to Commerce of the Prairies by Josiah Gregg. So this is a writing about a writing about the adventures crossing the prairies. Without further ado, George Bird Grinnell's take on Josiah Gregg's The Commerce of the Prairies. At the end of the 16th and during the 17th century, a line of Spanish settlements ran from Mexico northward along the Rocky Mountains, terminating in the important town of Taos. To the north, northeast, and northwest of this town were other settlements occupied by the Spaniards and their descendants, and the streams and geographical features of the country bore Spanish names, almost up to the headwaters of the Rio Grande del Norte. North of the Arkansas, there was a change of tongue, and the names were English or French, given much later by American trappers who had been pushed westward, or by French Canadians and Creoles who were early voyagers into the plains. Though Taos was an important place, it did not equal either in size or wealth the town of Santa Fe. The first settlements of what is now New Mexico were made about the end of the 16th century, and a colony was established on the Rio del Norte in New Mexico. Agriculture was practiced and mines were discovered and worked. The Spaniards, in their greed for precious metals, made slaves of the docile Indians and forced them to labor in the mines under circumstances of the greatest severity and hardship. Almost a hundred years later, in August 1680, this ill treatment caused the insurrection of the Pueblos, which put an end to many a flourishing Spanish settlement and temporarily to the country's development. For a time, the Spaniards were driven out, but it was for a time only. A little later, they returned, resubdued the country, and by the close of the century, were stronger than ever. Nevertheless, the Pueblo revolt was not without its good effect, and during the 18th century, the Indians were far better treated than they had been before. In the year 1806, Captain Zebulon M. Pike crossed the plains and reached the city of Santa Fe. 
his return told the inhabitants of the farther west of a country beyond the plains where there were towns and people who would purchase goods brought to them. Previous to this, a merchant in Kaskaskia named Morrison had sent a French Creole named Lalande up the Platte River, directing him to go to Santa Fe to trade. But Lalande, though he reached that city, never returned, nor accounted to his employer for the goods that were entrusted to him. James Pursley, an American, was perhaps the second man to cross these plains and reach the Spanish settlements. When Captain Pike returned, the news of these settlements, hitherto unknown, created great interest throughout the slowly advancing frontier. Expeditions went out to Santa Fe in 1812, but the traders were suspected by the New Mexicans of being spies. Their goods were confiscated and they themselves imprisoned and detained for years, some of them returning to the United States in 1821. After this, other parties went out, and the trading which they did with the Spaniards was successful and profitable. More and more expeditions set forth, often manned by people who were entirely ignorant of the country through which they were to pass and of the hardships which they were to face. Some of these died from starvation or thirst, or at the very least suffered terribly, and often were unsuccessful. But about 1822, the trade with Santa Fe became established. The distance from the American settlements across the plains to Santa Fe was hardly halfway from Veracruz to Santa Fe and there was great profit in the trade, but it was not without its dangers. Indians were constantly met with, and many of the traders did not understand how to treat them. Some traders were robbed, others resisted harshly, and sometimes killing a savage were attacked, robbed of their animals, and occasionally lost a man. Among the interesting records of the plains of these early times is Josiah Gregg's Commerce of the Prairies. Gregg, an invalid made his first trip across the plains on the advice of his physician. The effect of his journey was to reestablish his health and to beget in him a passion for prairie life. He soon became interested as a proprietor in the Santa Fe trade and for eight successive years continued to follow this business. The period covered by his volumes is from 1831 to 1840, during which time the trade was at its height. The caravan with which Greg started set out with near a hundred wagons, of which one half were hauled by oxen and the remainder by mules. The very night that they left Council Grove, their cattle stampeded, but being corralled within the circle of the wagons, did not escape. Having a large company, it was natural that there should be among it a number of people who were constantly seeing dangers that did not exist. They had been out but a short time when, quote, Alarms now began to accumulate more rapidly upon us. A couple of persons had a few days before been chased to the wagons by a band of buffalo. And this evening the encampment was barely formed when two hunters came bolting in with information that a hundred, perhaps, of the same enemy were at hand. At least this was the current opinion afterward. The hubbub occasioned by this fearful news had scarcely subsided when another arrived on a panting horse crying out, Indians, Indians, I've just escaped from a couple who pursued me up to the very camp. Two arms, two arms, resounded from every quarter. And just then, a wolf, attacked by the fumes of broiling buffalo bones, set up a most hideous howl across the creek. Someone in distress, was instantly shouted. To his relief, vociferated the crowd. And off they bolted, 
One and all, arms in hand, hurly-burly, leaving the camp entirely unprotected, so that had an enemy been at hand, indeed, and approached us from the opposite direction, they might easily have taken possession of the wagons. Before they had returned, however, a couple of hunters came in and laughed very heartily at the expense of the first alarmists, whom they had just chased into camp. End of quote. While baseless Indian scares were common, they sometimes had genuine frights, as in the case of a large body of Indians met on the Cimarron River. On this occasion, it was a genuine alarm, a tangible reality. These warriors, however, as we soon discovered, were only the vanguard of a countless host who were, by this time, pouring over the opposite ridge and galloping directly toward us. The wagons were soon irregularly formed upon the hillside, but in accordance with the habitual carelessness of caravan traders, a great portion of the men were unprepared for the emergency. Scores of guns were empty, and as many more had been wetted by the recent showers, would not go off. Here was one calling for balls, another for powder, a third for flints. Exclamations such as, I've broken my ramrod, I've split my caps, I've rammed down a ball without powder. My gun is choked. Give me yours. We heard from different quarters. While a timorous greenhorn would perhaps cry out, Here, take my gun. You can outshoot me. The more daring bolted off to encounter the enemy at once, while the timid and cautious took a stand with presented rifles behind the wagons. The Indians who were in advance made a bold attempt to press upon us, which came near costing them dearly, for some of our fiery backwoodsmen more than once had their rusty but unerring rifles directed upon the intruders, some of whom would inevitably have fallen before their deadly aim, had not some of the more prudent traitors interposed. The Indians made demonstrations no less hostile, rushing with ready sprung bows upon the portion of our men who had gone in search of water, and mischief would perhaps have ensued had not the impetuosity of the warriors been checked by the wise men of the nation. The Indians were collecting around us in such great numbers that it was deemed expedient to force them away so as to resume our march, or at least to take a more advantageous position. Our company was therefore mustered and drawn up in a line of battle, and, accompanied by the sound of drum and fife, we marched toward the main group of the Indians. The latter seemed more delighted than frightened with this strange parade and music, a spectacle they had, no doubt, never witnessed, and perhaps looked upon the whole movement rather as a complimentary salute than a hostile array, for there was no interpreter through whom any communication could be conveyed to them. But whatever may have been their impressions, one thing is certain, that their principal chief appeared to have full confidence in the virtue of his horse, which he alighted and came boldly forward to meet our warlike corps. Serenely smoking the pipe of peace, our captain, now taking a whiff with the chief, directed him by signs to cause his warriors to retire. This most of them did, to rejoin the long train of squaws and papooses with the baggage, who followed in the rear and were just then seen emerging from beyond the hills. It was estimated that there were not less than two or three thousand of these Indians, who were supposed to be Blackfeet and Gros Ventre. They remained for some days in the neighborhood of the train and kept the traders on tender hooks of anxiety, lest there should be an attack or a wholesale driving off of cattle. Later, there were talks, or at least friendly meeting, and giving of presents, and finally the Indians moved away without doing any harm. It was but a day or two later, however, when some Comanches had a skirmish with the train, but without evil results to either party. It was not long after this that the train, still venturing westward, saw evidence of their approach to the Spanish settlements. 
On the 5th of July, as they were proceeding after the celebration of the day before, they met a Mexican cibulero, or hunter of buffalo, one of those hardy wanderers of the plains who used to venture out from the Spanish settlements to secure dried buffalo meat, killing buffalo and trading with the Indians. These wanderers made long journeys, which often extended as far as the country claimed and occupied by Crow, Cheyenne, and Pawnee. Perfectly accustomed to the life of the plains, armed with gun and lance and bow and arrows, they were not less free than the aboriginal inhabitants, whose methods in many ways they imitated, and whose blood many of them shared. Like the Indians, these buffalo hunters killed their game chiefly with the arrow and the lance, and, drying its flesh, packed it onto their mules or in the ox carts, and carried it back to the settlements to trade. It was not very long after that Greg, leaving the train and pushing ahead with the others, found himself in the city of Santa Fe. He was much impressed by the new country, inhabited by a race as different as possible from those whom he had left in his eastern home. He was a close observer and records interestingly much of what he saw. The wild tribes are described, the Navajos, the Apache, the Utes, and the Kiowas. Much is said of the raids of the Apaches and the terror in which they kept the inhabitants of the towns, as well as the Mexican troops stationed there to protect these inhabitants. The savage butchery of a lot of Apaches by a troop of men under an American leader may perhaps be the incident which has given rise to many similar tales concerning the similar slaughters of the olden times. It seems there was a celebrated Apache chief called Juan Jose, whose cunning and audacity had caused him to be feared throughout the whole country. The government of Sonora had announced that all booty taken from the savages under his command should be the property of those who took it. Accordingly, in the spring of 1837, a party of some 20 men composed chiefly of foreigners spurred on by the love of gain and never doubting but the Indians, after so many years of successful robberies, must be possessed of a vast amount of property, set out with an American as their commander who had long resided in the country. In a few days they reached a ranch of about 50 warriors with their families, among them who was the famous Juan Jose himself and three other principal chiefs. On seeing the Americans advance, the former at once gave them to understand that if they came to fight, they were ready to accommodate them. But on being assured by the leader that they were merely bent on a trading expedition, a friendly interview was immediately established between the parties. The American captain, having determined to put these obnoxious chiefs to death under any circumstances, soon caused a little field piece, which had been concealed from the Indians, to be loaded with chain and canister shot, and to be held in readiness for use. The warriors were then invited to the camp to receive a present of flour, which was placed within range of the cannon. While they were occupied in dividing the contents of the bag, they were fired upon, and a considerable number of their party killed on the spot. The remainder then attacked with small arms, and about twenty slain, including Juan Jose and the other chiefs. Those who escaped became afterward their own avengers in a manner which proved terribly disastrous to any other party of Americans who happened to be trapping on the Gila River not far distant. The enraged savages resolved to take summary vengeance upon those unfortunate trappers and falling upon them, massacred them, every one. It is added that, quote, the Apaches previous to this date had committed but few depredations upon foreigners, restrained either by fear or respect, Small parties of the latter were permitted to pass the highways of the wilderness unmolested, while large caravans of Mexicans suffered frequent attacks. It is generally known that the Indians of the plains regarded the Mexicans as a different people from the dwellers of the United States. And there was even a time when 
a distinction was made between the inhabitants of the United States and those of the Republic of Texas. The bounty on scalps adopted by the Mexican government in 1837 was one of the many schemes devised by the people of the borderland to check the ravages of the Indians. By this proyecto de guerra, a series of bounties were paid for scalps, running from $100 for the scalp of a full-grown man down to 50 for that of a woman and 25 for that of a little child. For a brief time, this bounty was paid, and Greg himself saw a scalp brought in on a pole by a Mexican officer in command of troops, precisely as the Indians, returning from the warpath, used to bring their scalps into their home village. In 1838, Greg returned across the plains, meeting a few adventures, among which the most important was an attack on the train by Indians who were supposed to be the Pawnee. The effort was merely to steal their horses, which, happily, they saved. In 1839, after having been only a few months in the States, Greg was unable to resist his longing for the free life of the prairies and began to make preparations for another trip to the Mexican settlements. At that time, the ports of Mexico were blockaded by French men of war, and the demand for goods was great, with the prospect of correspondingly high prices. Late in April, the wagon train, loaded with $25,000 worth of goods, crossed the Arkansas, not far from the mouth of the Canadian fort. They had not proceeded far before they lost a teamster. Quote, a Cherokee shopkeeper came up to us with an attachment for debt against a free mulatto, whom we had engaged as a teamster. The poor fellow had no alternative but to return to his creditor, who committed him at once to the care of Judge Lynch for trial. We ascertained afterward that he had been sentenced to take the benefit of the bankrupt law after the manner of the Cherokees of that neighborhood. This is done by stripping and tying the victim to a tree, when each creditor, with a good cowhide or hickory switch in his hand, scores the amount of the bill due upon his bare back. One stripe for every dollar due is the usual process of whitewashing. And as the application of the lash is accompanied by all sorts of quaint remarks, the exhibition affords no small merriment to those present, with the exception, no doubt, of the delinquent himself. After the ordeal is over, the creditors declare themselves perfectly satisfied, nor could they, as is said, ever be persuaded thereafter to receive one red cent of the amount due, even if it was offered to them. As the poor mulatto was also in our debt, and was perhaps apprehensive that we might exact payment in the same currency, he never showed himself again. The leaders of the party just setting out were well armed, with Colt's repeating rifles and revolvers, and carried besides two small cannon. Among the men were a number of young fellows from the east, most of them quite without prairie experience. They had not been many days when one of the party, out hunting, became lost, and not returning at night, muskets were fired to guide him to camp. But he imagined that the firing was done by hostile Indians, and fled from the sound. Finally, according to his statement, he was attacked during the night by a panther, which he succeeded in beating off with the butt of his gun. It was imagined, however, from the peculiar odor with which the shattered gun was still redolent when he reached the camp, that the panther that he had driven off was not many degrees removed in affinity from a skunk. When the train reached the North Fork of the Canadian, they met with a considerable camp of Comanches, with whom they had some friendly intercourse. With them was a body of United States dragoons under Lieutenant Bowman, to whom had been entrusted the task of trying to make peace with the Comanches, and so protecting the settlements of the border. Among these Comanches were a number of Mexican captives, women, boys, and small children, of whom Greg notes that a number of them were still well able to speak Spanish. 
In other words, their captivity had been so short that they had a clear memory of the events of earlier life. An effort was made to purchase several of these captives in order to return them to their homes. Most of them, however, were unwilling to go, and for a variety of reasons. One of the lads, only 10 or 12 years old, explaining that by his life among the Indians, he had become now too much of a brute to live among Christians. Greg did purchase one young man and was repaid by much gratitude. It was near the Canadian River, which they had now reached, that a small party of Americans experienced terrible suffering in the winter of 1832-1833. The party, Greg says, consisted of 12 men, chiefly citizens of Missouri. Their baggage and about $10,000 in specie were packed upon mules. They took the route of the Canadian River, fearing to venture on the northern prairies at that season of the year, having left Santa Fe in December. They had proceeded without accident thus far, when a large body of Comanches and Kiowas were seen advancing toward them. Being well acquainted with the treacherous and pusillanimous disposition of those races, the traders prepared at once for defense. But the savages, having made a halt at some distance, began to approach one by one or in small parties, making a great show of friendship all the while, until most of them had collected on the spot. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to our story. Finding themselves surrounded in every direction, the travelers now began to move on, in hopes of getting rid of the intruders. But the latter were equally ready for the start, and, mounting their horses, kept jogging in the same direction. The first act of hostility perpetrated by the Indians proved fatal to one of the American traders named Pratt, who was shot dead while attempting to secure two mules which had become separated from the rest. Upon this, the companions of the slain man immediately dismounted and commenced to fire upon the Indians, which was warmly returned, whereby another man by the name of Mitchell was killed. By this time, the traders had taken off their packs and piled them around for protection. And now, falling to work with their hands, they very soon scratched out a trench deep enough to protect them from the shot of the enemy. 
The latter made several desperate charges, but they seemed too careful of their own personal safety, notwithstanding the enormous superiority of their numbers, to venture too near the rifles of the Americans. In a few hours, all the animals of the traders were either killed or wounded, but no personal damage was done to the remaining ten men, with the exception of a wound in the thigh received by one, which was not at the time considered dangerous. During the siege, the Americans were in great danger of perishing from thirst, as the Indians had complete command of all the water within reach. Starvation was not so much to be dreaded, because in cases of necessity they could live on the flesh of their slain animals, some of which lay stretched close around them. After being pent up for 36 hours in this horrible hole, during which time they had seldom ventured to raise their heads above the surface without being shot at, they resolved to make a bold sortie in the night, as any death was preferable to the death that awaited them there. As there was not an animal left that was at all in condition to travel, the owners of the money gave permission to all to take and appropriate to themselves whatever amount each man could safely undertake to carry. In this way, they started with a few hundred dollars, of which but little ever reached the United States. The remainder was buried deep in the sand, in hope that it might escape the cupidity of the savages. But to very little purpose, for they were afterwards seen by some Mexican traders making a great display of specie, which was without doubt taken from this unfortunate cash. With every prospect of being discovered, overtaken, and butchered, but resolved to sell their lives as dearly as possible, they at last emerged from their hiding place and moved on silently and slowly until they found themselves beyond the purlieus of the Indian camps. Often did they look back in the direction where three to five hundred savages were supposed to watch their movements, but, much to their astonishment, no one appeared to be in pursuit. The Indians, believing no doubt that the property of the traders would come into their hands, and having no amateur predilection for taking scalps at the risk of losing their own, appeared willing enough to let the spoliated adventurers depart without further molestation. The destitute travelers, having run themselves short of provisions, and being no longer able to kill game for want of materials to load their rifles, they were very soon reduced to the necessity of sustaining life upon roots and the tender bark of trees. After traveling for several days in this desperate condition, with lacerated feet and utter prostration of mind and body, they began to disagree among themselves about the route to be pursued and eventually separated into two distinct parties. Five of these unhappy men steered a westward course and, after a succession of sufferings and privations which almost surpassed belief, they reached the settlements of the Creek Indians near the Arkansas River, where they were treated with great kindness and hospitality. The other five wandered about in the greatest state of distress and bewilderment, and only two finally succeeded in getting out of the mazes of the wilderness. After many difficulties, Greg reached Santa Fe again, and prepared to start south for Chihuahua, where a better market for his goods was expected. They crossed the famous Jornada del Muerto, and reached El Paso del Norte, and at last, Chihuahua. Here was a country devoted to raising cattle, the herds, according to Greg, being almost as numerous as those of the buffalo on the northern plains, some time was devoted to journeying through northern Mexico. On his return to Santa Fe, Greg, having ordered his men to, quote, rope a beef, quote, for food from the herds which covered the plains, got in trouble with the Mexican authorities and was greatly delayed, being taken back to Chihuahua and tried for his offense. 
but acquitted on the ground of ignorance of the laws and the customs of the country. Shortly before they reached the state plains, on their return, they were attacked by a war party of Pawnees on foot, who succeeded in running off a few of the horses and in wounding two or three men. Their Comanche guide took them safely across the plains until at last they reached the Canadian River. Greg relates of the wind of the prairie. It will often blow a gale for days and even weeks together without slacking for a moment, except occasionally at night. It is for this reason, as well as on account of the rains, that percussion guns are preferable upon the prairies, particularly for those who understand their use. The winds are frequently so severe as to sweep away both sparks and priming from a flintlock, and thus render it wholly ineffective. While following down the Canadian, they found buffalo very abundant, and the gentleness and lack of suspicion of the animal is noted. On one occasion, two or three hunters who were a little in advance of the caravan, perceiving a herd quietly grazing in an open glade, they crawled upon them after the manner of the still hunters, their first shot having brought down fine, fat cow. They slipped up behind her, and resting their guns over her body, shot two or three others, without occasioning any serious disturbance or surprise to their companions. For, extraordinary as it may appear, if the buffalo neither see nor smell the hunter, they will pay but little attention to the crack of the guns, or the mortality which is being dealt among them. Greg's praiseworthy reflections on the wanton killing of the buffalo are made in entire good faith, yet only a day or two later he frankly confesses to some unnecessary killing that he did himself. He says of the excessive destruction, The slaughter of these animals is frequently carried to an excess, which shows the depravity of the human heart in very bold relief. Such is the excitement that generally prevails at the sight of these fat denizens of the prairies, that very few hunters appear able to refrain from shooting as long as the game remains within reach of their rifles, nor can they ever permit a fair shot to escape them. Whether the mere pleasure of taking life is the incentive of these brutal excesses, I will not pretend to decide. But one thing is very certain, that the buffalo killed on these prairies far exceeds the wants of the travelers, or what might be looked upon as the exigencies of rational sport. In a footnote, he adds, The same barbarous propensity is observable in regard to wild horses. Most persons appear unable to restrain this wanton inclination to take life when a Mustang approaches within rifle shot. Many a stately steed thus falls a victim to the cruelty of man. In April 1840, Greg reached the end of his journey, his last trip upon the plains. He was as susceptible as other men have shown themselves to the attractions of the free life of the prairie, its sovereign independence, but acknowledges the disadvantages which follow an almost entire separation from one's fellow man. Nevertheless, since that time, he says, I have striven in vain to reconcile myself to the even tenor of civilized life in the United States and have sought in its amusements and its society a substitute for those high excitements which have attached me so strongly to prairie life. Yet I am almost ashamed to confess that scarcely a day passes without my experiencing a pang of regret that I am not now roving at large upon those western plains, nor do I find my taste peculiar, for I have hardly known a man who has ever become familiar with the kind of life which I have led for so many years that has not relinquished it with regret. In his account of the animals of the prairies, 
Greg names first the Mustang, and here we find one of the earliest mentions of a traditional wild horse, which has come down in many a story. The beauty of the Mustang is proverbial, he writes. One in particular has been celebrated by hunters, of which marvelous stories are told. He has been presented as a medium-sized stallion of perfect symmetry, milk white, save a pair of black ears, and so fleet, it is said, as to leave far behind every horse that had been tried in pursuit of him, without breaking his pace. But I infer that this story is somewhat mythical from the difficulty which one finds in fixing the abiding place of this equine hero. He is familiarly known, by common report, all over the great prairies. The trapper celebrates him in the vicinity of the northern Rockies, the hunter on the Arkansas or in the midst of the plains, while others have him pacing at the rate of a half a mile per minute on the borders of Texas. It is hardly a matter of surprise, then, that a creature of such a ubiquitous existence should never have been caught. The wild horses are generally well-formed, with trim and clean limbs. Still, their elegance has been much exaggerated by travelers, because they have seen them at large abandoned to their wild and natural gaiety. Then, it is true, they appear superb indeed, but when caught and tamed, they generally dwindle down to ordinary ponies. Large droves are frequently seen upon the prairies, sometimes of hundreds together, gambling and curvetting within a short distance of the caravans. It is sometimes difficult to keep them from dashing among the loose stock of the traveler, which would be exceedingly dangerous, for once together they are hard to separate again, particularly if the number of Mustangs is much the greater. It is a singular fact that the gentlest wagon horse, even though quite fagged with travel, once among a drove of Mustangs, will often acquire in a few hours all the intractable wildness of his untamed companions. It is many years since the real Mustang has been seen upon the prairie, Today, his place is taken by the range horse, an animal of very different character, though of similar habits. Yet, we well recall a time, long before the day of the range and its cattle or horses, when journeying through the southern country, little bands of mustangs could sometimes be seen. One such, which passed once close to our command, was noticeable for the presence among its numbers of a gigantic mule, which it had picked up from some traveling party, and which was now as wild as the horses themselves. Naturally, Greg has much to say about the buffalo, and he voices an impression which long had currency, and may still be believed by people, that the bulls were sentinels and guards for the cows and calves. Speaking in general terms, he says, a buffalo cow is about as heavy as a common ox, while a large fat bull will weigh perhaps double as much. These are very gregarious animals. At some seasons, however, the cows rather inclined to keep themselves. At other times, they are mostly seen in the center of the gang, while the bulls are scattered around, frequently at a considerable distance, evidently guarding the cows and calves. And on the outskirts of the buffalo range, we are apt to meet with small gangs of bulls alone, a day or two's travel distance, as though performing the office of peak guards of the main herds. In his remarks about the gray wolf and its habits, he touches on the question as to whether the big wolf of America ever voluntarily attacks man. He says, I have never known these animals, rapacious as they are, to extend their attacks to man though they probably would if very hungry. 
and a favorable opportunity presented itself. I shall not soon forget an adventure with one of them many years ago on the frontier of Missouri, riding near the prairie border. I perceived one of the largest and fiercest of the gray species, which had just descended from the west and seemed famished to desperation. I at once prepared for a chase, and, being without arms, I caught up a cudgel, and when I valiantly took to the charge, I soon discovered that I was stronger in my cause than in my equipment. The wolf was in no humor to flee, however, but boldly met me full halfway. I was soon disarmed, for my club broke upon the animal's head. He then laid to my horse's legs, which, not relishing the conflict, gave a plunge and sent me whirling over his head and made his escape, leaving me and the wolf at close quarters. I was no sooner upon my feet than my antagonist renewed the charge, but being without weapon or any means of awakening an emotion of terror, save through his imagination, I took off my large black hat and using it for a shield, began to thrust it towards his gaping jaws. My ruse had the desired effect, for, after springing at me a few times, he wheeled about and trotted off several paces, and stopped to gaze at me. Being apprehensive that he might change his mind and return to the attack, and conscious that, under the compromise, I had the best of the bargain, I very resolutely took to my heels, glad of the opportunity of calling it a draw though I had myself given the challenge. Greg devotes considerable space to a discussion of the Aborigines of America, and among those he mentions most of the prairie tribes. He speaks at some length of what we now call the civilized tribes, that is to say the Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminoles. He notes the dreadful evil that liquor has created among the Indians, and gives at the same time a somewhat amusing account of the legislative council among the Choctaws, where whiskey was banished from the nation. Many and long were the speeches which were made, and much enthusiasm was created against the monster, Whiskey, and all his brood of compound enormities. Still, everyone seemed loath to move his arrest and execution. Finally, a captain of more than ordinary temerity arose and offered a resolution that each and every individual who should thenceforth dare to introduce any of the liquid curse into their country should be punished with a hundred lashes on his bare back and the liquor be poured out. This was passed, after some slight changes, by acclamation. But, with the due sense of the injustice of ex post facto restrictions, and all those who had liquors on hand were permitted to sell them. The council adjourned, but the members soon began to canvass among each other the pernicious consequences which might result from the protracted use of the whiskey already in the shops, and therefore concluded the quicker it was drank up, the more promptly would the evil be over. So, Falling to, in less than two hours, Bacchus never mustered a drunker troop than were these same temperance legislators. The consequences of their determination were of lasting importance to them. The law, with some slight improvements, has ever since been rigorously enforced. It is interesting to note that the Comanches, while bitterly at war with the Mexicans and the Texans, for many years, nevertheless, cultivated peace with the New Mexicans, not only because the poverty of the country offers fewer inducements for their inroads, but because it is desirable, as with the interior Mexican tribes, to retain some friendly point 
with which to keep an amicable intercourse and traffic. Parties of them have therefore sometimes entered the settlements of New Mexico for trading purposes, while every season numerous bands of New Mexicans, known as Comancheros, supplied with arms, ammunition, trinkets, provisions, and other necessaries, launch upon the prairies to barter for mules and the different fruits of their ravages upon the earth. Gregg's history of these first beginnings of the westward commerce of the United States is a valuable and interesting repository of the facts of the period. It purports to be only a diary of a trader, but actually it is history. And that concludes George Bird Grinnell's Commerce of the Prairies, chapters 21 and 22 of Trails of the Pathfinders, originally published in 1911. And again, this is Grinnell's look at Josiah Gregg's seminal work, The Commerce of the Prairies, printed in 1845. And now I want to share a few reviews that we've got over at Apple Podcasts. First is from 1DDM1. Uh, title is I Like This Guy. Huff is a solid selection for Kevin Sykes to make his introduction. The new host is off to a great start. Looking forward to hearing more. Well, I'm looking forward to giving you more. So uh, keep listening and uh, leaving those reviews and we'll have more episodes. Next, we have Market Pop. Good guy. Good show. Loved the Hickok episode. I tell you, I did love the Hickok episode. I think that's been our best one so far. My favorite. Um, we're going to focus a little bit more on individual histories coming up. Finally, we have, now I don't know where these guys get these names, but this is Quo Mofo, and his is great storytelling, good stories, and easy to listen to. Rangering is a good one. Kevin Sykes does a great job of narrating, has a good cadence, and it makes the listener feel as if they are in the Old West. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Quo Mofo. And uh, again, look forward to getting more episodes out there. Keep listening. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.